Welcome to the SAS Mining Podcast. At SAS Mining, we are bringing you into conversations with today's industry leaders in blockchain and cryptocurrency. Our goal with this podcast is to improve the understanding and adoption of blockchain and cryptocurrency by giving you an insider's look at what's being built and informed predictions on what the future holds. Today's guest is a graduate of ETF Belgrade, where he received both a bachelor's and master's degree. He later went on to complete his PhD at Rice University. Then he traveled to California, where he was a visiting researcher at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center and advisor at Narus Inc. He was co-founder and chief scientist at Nanji Inc. And today he is both a professor of computer science at Northwestern University and founder of Blocks Root Labs, a blockchain distribution network that is solving the largest problems that blockchains face today. So with all that said, I'd like to welcome you, Alexander Kuzmanovich, to the podcast. Thank you so much for, for inviting me, and it's a great honor to be here. So I look forward to discussing uh, things here. Great. After being involved in academia and then going and moving towards blockchain and the work that you're doing today, what is it that led you to be interested in the work that you're doing currently at Bloxroot Labs? So basically, Bloxroute is is a, a startup that I uh, I co-founded with my former PhD student Uri Klarman, who is now our CEO at Bloxroute. So when he came to Northwestern, we never ever thought that we would uh, wanna go with a startup or anything like that. We were just, he was just a great PhD student. And we had a lot of fun doing a lot of research together. And at some point we pivoted towards blockchains for no good reason, it was just an interesting topic. And after one or two papers in the area, and after we, we realized uh, the current uh, uh, like idea behind Bloxroute, we started realizing that this could be more than just an academic paper, an academic exercise. And we said like at some point, hey, let's go for it. Let's, let's actually uh, do this in the real world because Writing papers on one, is is exciting on one on one end because you actually propose an idea, but actually executing that idea in the real world is a totally different ball game. So we wanted to figure out if we can do that in the real world. So that's how we we found it blocks out. Got it. And what was that core idea that you're referring to that's behind blocks route? Well, basically, when we looked at at, at blockchains and the, the scaling problem, uh, basically, both Uri and me, we are networking researchers. So, so basically, I come from the world of how TCP works, what is the streaming rate when you're downloading something, uh, when you're watching your Netflix and stuff like that. So we really are kind of uh, focused on the internet protocols and behavior, right? And so... When we looked at blockchains, we figured out that, that that's basically a network, right? You have a lot of different entities sending data to, to each other. And after looking more deeply into it, we said, look, the scaling problem for, for blockchains is basically a network, networking problem. Basically, if you can send data more efficiently among all these endpoints, uh, then the scale or the transaction per second rate on that blockchain can significantly be increased. And once we figured out that this, we, we should be able to increase this by, by a lot, by more than 100 or even in some cases, but more than 1000 times, we said, wow, this is serious. Let's try to actually do this. 
Got it. And so just to lay the context for, uh, for the discussion, how would you define uh, how, what a blockchain is? The picture that I have in my mind is, is that of Bitcoin, of course, because that's the first blockchain, the most successful blockchain. There were many, many other different directions that people took on blockchains afterwards. And these are all very interesting and some of them actually very, can actually work really well. But uh, my picture of blockchain that I have in my mind is that of Bitcoin. Basically, you have uh, different endpoints sending transactions to each other, right? Transactions meaning I send you a Bitcoin or even better, you send me a Bitcoin. You sign that with your private key and you send it to the blockchain. And then different entities, different miners out there collect all these different transactions. And the key, key question is how do we, how do these miners uh, put these transactions in a unique order such that everybody can agree that this is the order in which the transactions uh, are actually uh, put together uh, one behind another, right? And so basically ordering of transactions in a distributed manner, that's basically what the blockchain is is all about. So, and how to do that without a central authority, that basically is is a blockchain to an extent, at least in my uh, in my version of things. Got it. So you you kind of just ran through it where there's a blockchain's like a ledger, and you gave the example of Bitcoin where there's a set of rules that govern how transactions are added to that ledger. Yes, how the transactions are added to the ledger, and the key, the, the actually the fundamental problem behind all this. Uh, 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 why do we care about how do we order transactions? Well, the key idea is to have a security guarantee so that if I have one Bitcoin, for example, I can't give at the same time to you one Bitcoin and to somebody else, which on the internet is, is very easy, right? I just click a button and then one Bitcoin goes to you and one goes to another. So the key, uh, the key uh, uh, threshold that was solved by Bitcoin, the key problem is this double spending attack, right? Because if I can't, if I have one Bitcoin, but I can't spend it on two, lo- two points, two locations uh, uh, close to each other, then actually that's a very significant because then we actually have a currency where one cannot manipulate it such that they can go on and, and, and send multiple transactions. And this is why this ordering of transactions is important because even if I send two transactions, I send one to you and one to somebody else, two payments, only one of these payments is going to make on the blockchain because the other one is going to become conflicting. Once it becomes conflicting, it's not going to go on chain. And hence, if I have one Bitcoin, I can only spend one Bitcoin. And this sounds pretty generic and pretty straightforward, but this really is the key problem that Bitcoin solved uh, initially, and that's why uh, uh, we can talk about Bitcoin as a, as a currency, because people have confidence that uh, once they receive something and or send something, it's going to happen only once, and hence, there is money, right? Yeah, well, that, that definitely is revolutionary, how uh, Bitcoin was able to solve that double spend problem. Yep. One of the things that many people talk about is how blockchain, there are these great features that it has, but there are challenges that still need to be addressed within blockchain. What would be some of those challenges that in today's day and age, we're trying to solve 
in regards to blockchain systems? Yes. So, so basically here, necessarily, I mean, the, the one challenge that I can definitely talk about is scalability, because that's something that Blockstrout actually is trying to solve. And basically, scalability means, so we mentioned these transactions going from one to another. So currently, I mean, in, in its original design, Bitcoin supports three transactions per second. So that means if I send you one Bitcoin or, or some part of Bitcoin and two other people do that in the same second, only three of us can do that in one second, right? And in the next second, there are three other lucky ones and so on. But as you can imagine, this isn't sufficient for it to become a really, really viable system, right? Uh, because, for example, people always keep talking about credit cards and other uh, similar kind of centralized uh, infra uh, centralized systems. And for example, they can support uh, up to uh, like 5,000 on average and then much more uh, in the peak, right? So the one of the first uh, like one problem that, that that blockchains need to solve is scaling right if you can't support a large number of transactions that means that that particular money or that particular currency or that particular system is not used that much and if it's not used that it cannot be used that much then it's not useful for everyday uh, people right and so uh, this was the key challenge that we tried to to kind of address. Uh, that's not the only challenge for blockchains. There are other challenges, which yeah. is stability, <laughs> which is uh, regulations. There are many, many other things uh, that need to be solved, but this for sure is one. So we, we, we are taking care of this one problem and we encourage others to, to worry about ad, uh, other problems so that we can actually uh, make a big strides in this, in the, in this space. Yeah. And why is it that blockchains run into the scalability problem where you gave the example of Bitcoin, it was limited to three transactions per second. That seems very limiting. Yes. So so basically, uh, that is, uh, uh, I mean, uh, it's surprising for people who are not uh, into, this, into this field, but basically, uh, uh, as we discussed, the key... Uh, uh, one of the key kind of benefits of, of blockchains is that they're, they're decentralized systems, right? There is no single entity that controls this, uh, uh, how this particular system behaves, right? There is some code that is executed at different locations, at different decentralized locations, and uh, they keep executing this code and it just works. And that's a kind of magic moment, right? Because uh, there is no single authority that controls this and it still works, right? At the same time, when you have something great, it comes with some uh, baggage, right? So the baggage here is, yes, it's it's really decentralized. It, it can work without a single authority, but at, at the same time, it's not efficient. It is not efficient because you have miners all over the planet, right? And for all of them to come to the same page on which transactions were actually executed, some information needs to travel uh, in between all these uh, dis distributed endpoints, which takes time and hence it's slow, right? And so this is exactly the, the problem statement that we have for Blockstrouts saying, hey, uh, blockchain is a distributed system and hence it doesn't scale because the network in between is not uh, the peer-to-peer -peer communication utilized for blockchains is not, is, is not sufficiently it doesn't work that well, 
And hence, can we do something to make it more efficient? So you outlined a problem where these blockchains, you're in this balancing act where you want it to be decentralized, not have a central single authority, but then at the same time, you still want it to be efficient where you can put through a lot of transactions and still have that decentralized nature. And just on the surface, hearing that concept sounds very difficult to to solve. What is it that uh, that you are doing and working on that is addressing this problem that allows someone to maintain that type of balance between decentralization as well as uh, practical high throughput currency? Yes. So, so, so basically, there are two parts of this problem. The first, uh, the first part is efficiency. How do we make it efficient? And the second part is how do we Re, uh, make it still uh, be dis- decentralized. And so the efficiency part is something that in theory is not so hard to solve, right? Because we're talking about blockchains, a, a, a really uh, high-end blockchain can have like to say 10,000 nodes and they send like uh, some tens of megabytes of data every minute or so. And from the networking perspective, this is, a, this is not a huge problem. And I'll give you an example. You see, YouTube serves more than a billion users. And basically, YouTube sends more than a terabyte of data every single second. And nobody blinks an eye. Everybody's saying, aha, that's how it should be. It's it's, uh, an efficient system. It is not considered a surprise. So the question is, why is it a surprise if the blockchain, which is a much smaller scale system, why isn't it able to support much uh, bigger amounts of data? And so basically, Bloxroute is putting down a network infrastructure that is really tailored towards blockchains. It is trying to optimize performance for blockchains so that they can send, receive transaction faster. Uh, It can choose routes. It can do many, many different things behind the curtains. So this is one side of the story, and hence we uh, managed to improve its performance. But at the same time, the key challenge for us while designing this was not to create a new bottleneck, not to create a new central central system that would diminish the decentralized nature of blockchains. And hence, the way that we do this is that we are not removing the peer-to-peer nature of the blockchains. It is necessary for blockchains to still uh, have that peer-to-peer structure and for for nodes to communicate to each other directly. But in this case, we add a really fast and efficient uh, communication, additional communication path, right? And at the same time, we enable these endpoints to audit and to figure out that what we are doing, we are not uh, discriminating against you uh, against some users on behalf of others, and that basically we are neutrally blindly uh, pushing data through our system. So everyone is able to follow. Yeah, Could yeah, yeah. you explain what a peer-to-peer uh, system actually is? Mm-hmm. So basically, a peer-to-peer system is, is a system where there is no central authority, but each of the endpoints uh, uh, has some number of friends or peers to, to which it communicates. So for example, I talk to eight other nodes in the network, and then my neighbor talks to me and to seven other nodes out there in the network, right? It, it, it just giving you an example with, uh, uh, with a ratio of eight, where each node is connected to eight others. And hence, when I uh, have some information to send, is it an transaction or a block? 
I send it to my peers only, okay, to my eight peers. And then each of my peers send to their peers. And hence the information is then propagated in these in this, uh, 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 cascades throughout the network, right? So the good news is that nobody controls, uh, uh, there is no single entity that controls how the data is distributed to the network. But at the same time, the propagation of, the, of data through such a network is not really if, that efficient because it takes some time because it takes some number of rounds for the information to reach everybody in the network, right? So it takes eight in the first round, another uh, eight times eight, 64 in the other round. And so it, uh, the information propagates fairly well, but not as efficiently as it could be propagated. Okay, Got so it. this is peer-to-peer. -peer. Is your system tying into these existing blockchains and your systems utilizing that peer-to-peer -peer network? The way that a blocks route utilizes the peer-to-peer -peer networks is in terms of the blockchain system. The blockchain system only sees some peers around that. And hence, to a blockchain node, a blocks route point of entry to our network looks just like another peer, right? Mm -hmm. So there is no difference, like, and which is important because if you want to build a system that works with an existing system, with an existing system you really want to make it be compatible, right? So we are changing nothing in a blockchain system as is, right? We just add uh, another peer that actually is far more efficient peer that propagates data more efficiently to everybody else, uh, but the blockchain node doesn't know uh, much about it. It is simply seeing that as yet another peer and hence, this is how we can embed our system seamlessly. In terms of the scalability metrics that you've been able to see with this type of approach, how, how does that look? In theory, we were always, we argued that we can significantly increase the, the scaling properties uh, somewhere to thousands of transactions per second, right? Which is a huge upgrade relative to whatever three TPS that the Bitcoin has currently. Right, and so we. Uh, it took us some time. It wasn't easy initially. It looks like oh, it's going to be easy. Like everything works on paper. Let's just do it. However, once you get into the code and once you get into actually building a system, you realize it's 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 not as easy as you thought. But we were able to actually to actually do that. And so uh, about a year ago, we had demonstrated on Bitcoin Cash Network, a test network. We were capable of having more than. 300 nodes distributed all around the world. And we were capable of pushing the transaction per, sec per second rate more than 2000 TPS, okay? So this in my mind was a huge accomplishment because uh, we always knew that we should be able to get there, but once you actually get there, it's, it's a completely different feeling. And so actually demonstrating that we can do this. And of course, these nodes were distributed all over Europe, US and, and Asia. So it, it wasn't a toy example, it was a realistic setup in which we really demonstrated that we can actually, we actually do this. And of course, ever since we are also supporting the Ethereum blockchain. So, I mean, there's a lot going on in actually pushing uh, existing blockchains to, to move beyond, to, to increase their TPS rates. Going back, to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the problems that blockchains face. Is your company addressing other issues outside of scalability or is it right now designed specifically for scalability? So we are focused on, on, on scalability. However, 
it's not just like, uh, why do we care about scalability in the first place? Is it that somebody can go on and say, hey, my system cannot support 2000 TPS? Why do we care about that? Well, we care about scalability because once the TPS rate goes up, this is when the cost of using a blockchain should significantly reduce, okay? So if you have to pay, for example, uh, $1 to send a, a transaction on a particular blockchain, that's, that can be quite pricey, right? But if you can send it that same transaction for one cent or even less, well, that means if the cost of using the, the of sending transactions on chain is significantly smaller, this is when the usability comes into play. Because uh, once it becomes cheaper, this is when people are going to start to use it, distributed applications are going to use it, DeFi applications are going to use it more. And hence, we see this scalability, solving the scalability problem, not just like solving some artificial technical problem, but actually pushing the entire blockchain space into a new area where using blockchains is cheap, which then increases the usability of blockchains. The scalability problem is one of those uh, issues that, people are constantly talking about within blockchain and cryptocurrency. Uh, talking with you and seeing your perspective on it is, is very interesting. What are the major problems that you think people are currently running into in the development phases in making these blockchains scalable? There are different uh, approaches to that. Blockstrout, we are very friendly with all other projects that work in that space because we are just seeing us solving an important problem at an important layer. Uh, at the networking layer, but we are not uh, bashing or against any other scaling approaches such as layer two approaches or anything else, right? So we think that by solving this problem, we can help everybody else, right? And so this is one part of the story. The other part of the story is actually usability and really tying these micropayments, smart contracts and everything else into the bigger mainstream infrastructure that exists out there, which means online businesses and, and everything else, uh, the rest of the world, right? So given that my background is in internet protocols, I am very passionate about thinking about how we can actually use micropayments and, and, and smart contracts and everything else to kind of automate things within the, the internet itself right, within the different entities uh, and embed them deep into the internet protocols. And so this is one of the, one of the fields that I'm, I'm kind of thinking on, on my academic, uh, academic side of things. But of course, for any of this to happen, scaling is, is essential. And so this is why I keep going back and convinced that what we are doing at Blocksroute is really essential, uh, not just for uh, for the short term, but for the long term of the entire uh, space. Yeah. And you mentioned how there are some other companies who are working and taking a different type of approach to the scalability problem in blockchain. What is the approach that you see some of these other competitors taking? I wouldn't call them competitors because I really feel that there mm. is a lot of synergy in what we are doing. So basically, in addition to the existing uh, blockchain uh, systems such as Bitcoin, there's been a lot of advancement and there's been a lot of work on how to build more scalable consensus protocols, okay? And initially, whenever we would see some uh, more advanced uh, consensus protocol, 
they would think like, oh no, what is going on? These guys are going to do something that would make us not matter or something like that. However, that's not the case because even if you have this advanced blockchain consensus protocol, such as sharding, such as many, many other approaches, uh, hard problems are how to distribute data throughout the entire network and how to come to a consensus about what's going on. And for that, you have to send data quickly and efficiently through the network, right? So even if you have a very advanced consensus protocol, with blocks route, it becomes far more efficient than without it, okay? This is, this is uh, on one end. On the other end, there are these other layer two-based kind of solutions where you lock some amount of money on the side and then you can exchange off-chain at a much larger scale. But sooner or later, you would have to come back on chain to commit whatever you have, have been doing. <laughs> and whenever you come back, if, if, if the cost of writing on that on chain is smaller than it used to be, that's still good for those type of approaches. And so the more I'm, uh, if you're working in this space, the more we realize that we are all working towards the same goal and we are really not seeing others as competitors, but we see ourselves as kind of compatible with what others are doing. You you touched on a lot of different important points in that answer, a couple of them being consensus protocols and how that relates to other types of approaches like sharding. So could you explain uh, what exactly sharding is and how consensus protocols are important within sharding? Sharding is an approach uh, that is used in other parts of computer science, of course, not just for blockchains, but basically the idea is that if I send you a transaction, not everybody needs to know. You can partition the network in different parts so that each part of the network worries about some number of transactions, but not everybody needs to know about every, every single transaction. But when you think about, and hence, instead of having all the miners working on all the transactions, some subset of miners work on a subset of transactions, but then you keep switching these subsets so that you still have the same security guarantees, but at the same time, you can reach a higher scalability. But going back, you still have the same problem because no matter how smaller that subset is, it still is a distributed system, right? That that one shard. It is a a distributed system where you you can have miners all over the place. Even if the number of miners is smaller, they're still distributed. And they, if using a good network infrastructure, can achieve much higher TPS rates than if they just do peer-to-peer. And hence, uh, this is one example of how you can have an advanced uh, blockchain system that can still uh, benefit significantly from blocks out. Not at the order of thousands of X improvements, but tens to 100 improvements are still possible. And so this is essential for for any blockchain. Yeah. And so sharding is just one of those other approaches that is trying to increase the TPS of the amount of transactions that can happen on the network. Correct. uh, Also simultaneously still be a decentralized system. Correct. 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 Great. And another important aspect of uh, Blocks Route is this concept of neutrality. Could you explain how neutrality is important within the work that you guys are doing? Yes. So basically, this is the part of the story that I started talking initially when I, when I mentioned YouTube. The goal was to say pushing up the performance of blockchains 
so that you can have a much higher TPS rate with a centralized system, which as box route is, sh shouldn't be that hard, right? Because YouTube is already pushing the performance of for streaming for billions of users. And here you have a much smaller system, and hence improving the performance of a blockchain using a, a central network infrastructure is not easy, but it's not surprising. Right. However, the hard part of that problem is remaining neutral so that you we don't actually have the ability to censor transaction and to control what is happening on a, on a blockchain system. And so this basically is more or less the PhD thesis of Uri Klarman, my former PhD student, now, now our CEO. And so I'm not going to try to defend his PhD thesis here. That's the least uh, I want to do here. But basically, the key idea is, is that you can still uh, bring in the primitives in that underlying network that help convince the blockchain systems give them the means to control and to see that the network is actually neutral. Basically, so that the network cannot see the content of these blocks and transactions going through the network. And hence, there is a whole theory behind that. But basically, this is baked in from the beginning in the design of Blocks route. And we were, I mean, our contribution was that we, of course, we initially anticipated that people would ask this. So we said, hey, hey let's build from, the, from scratch, let's build a network that is incapable of censoring data that goes through that particular network. This is how BlockSout is designed. One of the things that, that's amazing about this, this project and this concept is because it really seems like you found an approach that you've, you're starting to see traction on solving the scalability problem, but then also keeping that neutrality and doing it in a way that, that seems to be working. What is that key component of your particular solution that keeps it neutral while being able to put through all of those transactions? That basically the network itself is incapable of knowing what it is transmitting. Basically, the endpoints can uh, opportunistically encrypt the data that they're sending through our network. Okay, so the network itself, when looking at the data, does not know what it is broadcasting. Hence, it cannot censor, right? And so this is not important just for us to convince the rest of the world that we are neutral, but it's important because, I mean, censorship is a real thing in the real world, right? If anybody comes to us, blocks it out and says, listen, we see this little transaction and we know that these are, these are some very bad people who are doing some very bad things. Uh, whenever you see this particular address, can you please not us, tell us about that or not let it through? And our answer to that question is, dear whoever, we would be happy to help and, and we have nothing against uh, law enforcement or anybody else, but we are unable to do that because our network is, not, is designed to not be able to do that. Right, and so this is this is one of the key uh, ingredients that help us stay neutral, not just for the sake of of uh, convincing the blockchain world that we are not bad guys, but for our own sake because we don't want to be pressured by anybody to do anything be, uh, to uh, uh, because we just can't do it. That's how the network is designed, and so this is one uh, one important uh, piece of that. Yeah, I mean, with that, 
there really is no type of way. There's no backdoor to get in and see, get any additional information on a particular transaction. I mean, as I said, we designed it so that we are safe from any, any third party coming to us and telling us to do this and that. Our answer is we wish we could, but we cannot help you. And still, it's a central network, but it's designed to be limited in what it can do. Of course, this raises other problems on how do you defend the network against uh, trash traffic that somebody can send and other things. But we have uh, methods to, to deal with that. And it took us some time to figure that out. But of course, nothing comes for free. Everything has its, its good and bad sides, but we were capable of pushing this direction while while solving these other problems that come with such an approach. Mm-hmm. What are some of your bold predictions of how the landscape is going to look uh, with the integration of blockchain in the future? Yes. I mean, typically, I don't like making these predictions because more than <laughs> often, I'm, I'm totally wrong. So my predictions are good in the sense that uh, whatever you hear from me, then something else is going to happen. So (laughs) it's good for that, right? So that's why I'm hesitant to do that. I can tell you what I wish happens. My big wish is that we have some type of economic layer for the internet, internet protocols and internet services. And of course, there are here and there pieces of different ideas going around, such as Falcoin and doing uh, many different things, but I think that there is a more, I'm sensing, that, uh, and again, I'm, I might be wrong, there is a lot of uh, a meat in that direction, that is number one. And number two, I'm seeing basically we are, uh, Bloxroute is also working with a lot of uh, trading companies, and basically there is a lot of happening in the def- so-called DeFi arena, and so this is something that is obvious because money is involved and hence and there is a lot of volatility in the prices of these different uh, uh, cryptocurrencies. And hence DeFi appears to be a very, very good direction where also Bloxroute is working with a lot of these uh, trading companies who care about sending transactions fast, faster the network, receiving data faster, right? And so, so basically, this is one the other direction. But I'm hoping that I'm not cursing all these different directions, given that I can be very wrong with with things. So I'm going to stop here and and just say that these are not my predictions. This is what I wish happens, but I don't know if it actually will happen. Yeah, and DeFi is one of those topics that's talked a lot about decentralized finance. Just for the people who are listening, can you outline what exactly? Uh, DeFi is? Uh, DeFi encompassing a large number of different applications. Think of traditional uh, financial services and then think about how you can do that in a decentralized manner. And so in DeFi, you can have this completely distributed lending and borrowing type of applications where, for example, uh, I want to borrow $10,000 and then other people can offer that money to me under a particular interest rate and then they can compete by decreasing the interest rate so that it, then eventually I can get that loan for a, for a smaller cost. And of course, there are many other other applications in, in this domain. And basically, I know about this because we, Bloxroute, not only do we help blockchain scale, but at the same time, we help entities in these like traders and others hear, uh, hear about transactions sooner and blocks, which is essential because once you have information about what's going on a blockchain, you can make uh, a better, quicker predictions 
on how you want to bet, who do you want to lend money, who do you not want to lend money. So it's 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 an interesting direction that I think is is taking over. And the reason why it is so popular is that the fluctuation of the value of different cryptocurrencies is is much more widely going up and down. Which uh, which makes it possible to to have more significant gains than in traditional finance. Yeah. So essentially, DeFi is a way that you can automate a lot of these financial services that are traditionally performed by banks or other lending type of correct institutions. Correct. You summarized that much better than me, <laughs> which is not a surprise, but that's fine. <laughs> well, you, you got into all the, the, the nitty yes, gritty yes, of it, yes, yes, yes. which is very important. That's why you're able to yes. build the, the companies uh, that are solving scalability. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Thank you for diving into all of that. The next part of the conversation that I want to go into is a little bit outside of cryptocurrency and okay. more into uh, some of the work that you've done previously. Uh-huh. Uh, right now, you're a professor. And my first question whenever I meet a, a professor is, what's your favorite part about teaching? Wow. That's a, I've been outside university for the last two years because I've been working with route. But it's quite a rewarding uh, experience when you have, I mean, I teach computer networks, computer programming and, and, and courses like that. And teaching is rewarding because you, at some point you realize that the students that you're teaching to are hearing these things that may be obvious to me because I keep talking about that uh, all the time, are hearing this for the first time f- from me, right? Which kind of raises the bar and makes you think like, wow, look, I mean, it, that's an interesting process. It can be quite rewarding. And basically, this is how I see it. Yeah, there's almost a, a weight behind that knowing that, and a responsibility, knowing that a lot of these concepts that you're teaching, you're creating this worldview for the people that that are in your classes. Yes. And basically some people, uh, I mean, uh, uh, non-majors only hear that once from from me and for example, and then then they go into a different discipline. And then I I do feel a little responsible, like, hey, I I don't want to blow this because (laughs) I mean, they're going to, they can form a a, a wrong idea about something. So it brings a little responsibility, but the rewarding part is much bigger because then you actually realize that you are actually teaching them something which is, which is uh, interesting. Yeah. And then almost like going back to the peer to peer concept, whatever you teach them, it propagates through their own network. And whenever Hopefully. they might be at a family dinner and the concept comes up, yes. they can explain what they learned in the class. Yes, 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 yes. That's, that's, that's the case. You were a systems engineer in Serbia. And yes. my, my question here is, what was that experience like, uh, not only in the role, but working in Serbia compared to uh, just other yes. countries where you've, you've worked? Serbia is, is a part of former Yugoslavia. So basically, it, there's nothing particularly different in working in Serbia versus working the rest of the world. People are very smart, and it was quite nice uh, working there. The difference was because I, I came uh, straight from the college before even I did my master's or PhD, and that's quite an experience because at college, I mean, at least in Serbia, we picked up a lot of uh, good uh, theory and science, but then I wasn't quite sure that I picked up enough of the practical 
experience, you know, like things, when you actually start working, you actually start doing things practically. <laughs> and I wasn't quite sure how good or not was I with that, because I mean, you're filled with something, but you don't know how good or not you are. And hence working there as a systems engineer at different uh, uh, positions, helped me realize that, that I actually learned something at school. <laughs> and I realized that I wasn't that bad at all. So actually, I, I, wasn't, I was quite good. So that helped me figure out that I want to push forward and do, uh, uh, go back to school and do more stuff. Yeah. So my next question is, what is your favorite movie? Oh, that's a hard one. I'm not <laughs> sure where that comes from. But Sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> no, 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 no. But that's a totally, uh, that is the most serious question you asked me. And so I would have to refrain from answering. Not be, no, I mean, I have 10 uh, names on my mind, but that's such a serious question. I don't want to make a mistake. I mean, if I would have <laughs> to choose one just out of nowhere, I would say Goodfellas, okay? Uh, Martin oh, Scorsese. wow, yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, that said, I could easily give you 10 others uh, that are that are really good. So indeed, I'm a big uh, movie fan and uh, I wish I go back to the movie theaters because then I will know that the Corona days are over. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, the, the movie theaters got hit yes. the hardest from, I guess well, it's hard to say who exactly got hit the exactly. hardest, but... I I had seen some numbers comparing um, the quarter before COVID hit and then post COVID. Oh yeah, I mean, and it was the scariest, scariest looking uh, financials that. Yes, yes, yes. yes. (laughs) Well, I'll be the first to go back as soon as that becomes possible. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Wow. Well, thanks again for coming onto the podcast. Uh, it, It was really a pleasure to get the chance to speak with you and learn from you and go through all the work that you're doing. So the last question that uh, I have for you is where can everyone who's listening right now connect with you online? First of all, thank you so much for inviting me. It was a, it, it, it was a great pleasure. It was really nice talking to you. It, it was fairly smooth. Uh, where can I be found online? Just uh, type my name in Google and, and you'll get back. I mean, I have my academic career and has, I have my Northwestern accounts, so you can email me there. I also, you, you can find me at Bloxroute, where you can find me at alex at bloxroute.com, or you can reach out on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and on other uh, places, uh, I don't know, Telegram, uh, Viber, and whatnot. Wherever you find me, uh, I'm happy to, to, to answer any questions or discuss or connect or whatnot. Great. Well, thanks again for all that you do. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much again. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the SAS Mining Podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media and YouTube for the latest updates and previews of upcoming episodes. Full episodes and transcripts can be found on sasmining.com every Thursday. If you want to hear us interview a particular guest on a future episode, please reach out to us at podcast at sasmining.com.